And I feel like I was galvanized to be a different person, to have a different sense of empathy and understand that, you know what, there is light, there is a lot of pain that is there, um, but that also doesn't minimize the beauty of a perfect day. I'm at a loss figuring out how to introduce this story. The truth is that it overwhelmed me and it brought me to my knees. When Stefa first told me her story on the phone, I cried while she told me. I cried again when we recorded the podcast together. Sometimes there's pain that's just so intense, there really are no words. I had to cut out so many long, long pauses during the podcast where neither of us even spoke. I don't really know how some people live through things that happen to them. This is one of those stories where you think, well, surely it can't get any worse. And then it does. You'll think that several times. However, the wonderful thing that you won't hear in the podcast is the part about Stefa that I have to tell you. The person that introduced me to her told me how warm and kind she was. I then read the same thing, ironically, when I ran across a post on Facebook where other people were nominating her for an award for her work in the community. I've since met others who told me how gracious she is. On the day of the podcast, she walked in carrying a bouquet of flowers for me. We had never even met. She is a gem of a human, and she has come out the other side of such great loss and pain to become the truly lovely person that she is. I'm grateful she shared her story because she's proof that you can still enjoy the most perfect moments even after so much pain, and you can be beautiful, kind person, despite the things that you have been through. So this is Jen, and I'm sitting here with Stefa. And Stefa has a pretty amazing story that she's going to share with us. So I'm going to let you take over. Sure. I have this interesting thread that has run through my life. And it's not one I would have chosen, um, but it is the thread. And uh, for me, it's curious as to um, as to why uh, why it's woven its way through my life. Um, but here it is, and it started when I was. Um, it probably it started certainly before me. My parents were uh, war refugees. They came through Ellis Island in the um, in the late 50s from Lithuania. Uh, they had been in a DP camp, and it set up uh, this bedrock of of um, unspoken trauma uh, in the home. It was too painful for them to talk about, really. Um, so there was a lot that was unsaid. How did and you find out the bits of story that you do have? It was really uh, really difficult. It was, uh, sometimes they were shared by my parents after uh, there were certain stories that were easily told. We did have like one cousin family that would tell us. Um, and then many, many years later, um, then I went to Lithuania to visit. 
and um, so I heard more stories there. Um, but really, when they left, the wall came down. They never saw their families again. It was they never found out what happened to them. So it was truly the wall coming down and not knowing. My mom came from a big family of like 13 kids, so she never really knew what happened to my family. Did they go to Siberia? Did they were they whatever? So and she uh, never found that out. She never, in many cases, never found out. Some news would trickle through. We would get letters that would come, but things were marked out or cut out, and they were all sort of uh, written in almost a code of, you know, what things... It was really kind of the Cold War creepiness. And um, so anyway, that was really the bedrock of what our family was like. And you would be really curious, but you wouldn't ask your parents because it was, you could see um, how painful it was. They would shut the conversation down very quickly. Um, and it would be sort of uh, the equivalent of, uh, can I ask you about the most traumatic thing that ever happened to you? And that's and not normal dinner conversation. Nobody wants to do that. No. When, no. And when is the good time to do that? Yeah. Also generationally, I think a lot about our parents' generation versus our generation. This yeah. is not the kind of things we talked about, no. you know, when I was young. No. Even. No, it, it was not at all, at all, especially I think of my father, uh, you know, somebody who, it was a very patriarchal, he was somebody that was kind of cranky and uh, very strong, but very domineering, um, and, um, and not somebody who was really interested in feelings. Those were all and there was so much trauma, trauma behind that. So, uh, so that's a long way of getting around to, uh, I was the youngest in a large family, and my, uh, my parents had, uh, my mom had had nine children. There were seven of us growing up, and now there's five. And uh, so it was, it was a big family environment, and I was the youngest. And where, for, um, for today, it's really coming back to that thread um, in the family. Uh, when I was eight years old, we were um, digging, we lived in this like salt box house and we were digging out this foundation underneath the house to, to make a crawl space with a foundation that had been sand. And, um, and one of my sisters was home and I was helping doing the shoveling. I was eight years old. Uh, so you were down under under the crawl space, and we were shoveling out the sand. So we would okay. shovel out the sand, then we'd throw it in a bucket, and our job was to remove all the sand so that a foundation could be poured. Okay. So I was underneath the house, and all of a sudden I looked up because something was dripping, and at that time I didn't realize what it was um, but what it was was my mother's blood dripping through the floor because she had attempted suicide and so I had run into the house and and my older sister was there and I and she stopped me at the door and she says just go upstairs and I remember uh, a, a short while later then an ambulance came to the house and I remember looking from the upstairs window at the ambulance and having this super powerful feeling like, wow, my life has irrevocably changed. This is a watershed moment. And I remember, I knew that, I knew that. It was one of those moments of like, wow, this is, and I had no idea that she had attempted suicide, but I just, I just had the vibe and the, you know, I just knew like, you know what, something about this is tectonic 
something has really changed in my life. I don't know what it is. I don't know. And I don't remember any successive thoughts about it. But I just have this one capture, sort of screen capture, mm-hmm. of looking out the window, seeing the ambulance, seeing people kind of, you know, walking up our steps and realizing my life just changed. And I don't know how or what, but this is a watershed moment. And so years after that, this was, you know, and certainly my mother had struggled with depression. There was a lot. And she was a, a, a warm, uh, she was like sunshine. She was a, a wonderful, you know, where my father was domineering. and, and um, She was the balance to that? She was the balance. And her whole family, the whole, you know, people loved her. She was warm and, and funny and, and all that. So um, do you, did you realize at that young age then that she did have times of depression? Or was it only when you were older and looking back that you sort of realized it was there all along? Uh, I don't have memories of that, really, that are deep. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there was a progression. And from there on, you know, it was serious clinical, whether she might be hospitalized in Mercy's psychiatric ward, she might have been hospitalized at a, you know, she might have good, good phases. Of, um, there might be months where she was dealing well and she was um, certainly broken and um, and how she managed was how she you know whether it was it was good or not that was really um, uh, that was really a, a pivotal moment so from then on it was it was at a different level it was at a different much different level and you and lived with that growing up then that was my and so it was a lot of role reversal in the house of you know whether we um my dad had a small lumber mill and we were always you know working in the family business whether it was stacking two by fours whether it was whatever um after school we'd get dropped off and but you know i would be doing all the cooking in the house or you know those sorts of things and mm-hmm. um you know but um but that was that was a lot of post uh, post-war trauma that I think she probably, uh, at a baseline level, realized that I was old enough to take care of myself. Yes. And so, phew, you know, I've been trying to hold this together for years. Right. And, um, and now, you know, I can kind of just deal with the trauma. Or not deal with the trauma, but have but the... get get out. Yeah, get out. Yeah. You know, I remembered... Um, one, when you think of those little moments of what changed in the house, I remember my dad, who was not very good at dealing with things, he took all the knives in the house and ground them down. So when you think of, you know, your house, there were no long knives in the house anymore. We basically had paring knife. You know, he took anything that was a steak knife or longer and pared it down. So when you think of, like, little anomalies in your house, like... That was hey. just the way that we lived. That's the way that we lived. You know, that was my father's way of trying, of risk management. Sure. So He um, was doing what he could. He, that, was his, uh, that was his gesture. So then the next, um, and depression has been an Achilles heel with, um, with a number of my siblings, and they have um, uh, struggled in that way. And my sister, my oldest sister, uh, dealt with it through her life and um, at that time there was less medication, there was less therapy, there were less supports, there was less understanding of how she had as, as the oldest suffered in a particularly difficult way with absorbing some of the trauma of my parents, 
of, you know, she had been born in Germany when they were in a, a displaced persons camp for two years. She had been, uh, when there was a, a tragic accident with a, another sibling that had died in the displaced person camp. So she, at a very, very early age, had, you know, dealt with a great deal of trauma and I think that wounded her um, in a way. And when I was, um, uh, you know, but there were certainly years that she was uh, vibrant and, and um, wonderful. But the sad part of the story is that when I was in my 20s, uh, finishing up college, then it was a, a November day and she killed herself. How much older was she than you? Um, 18 years. So you grew up with this person sort of as a second parent. It was. She was, and I remember she was a wonderful seamstress, and she would make matching outfits. And um, and I remember going to her college graduation, and we had matching outfits, cute dresses. Um, oh my gosh! It was a heartbreak. Yeah. So you've dealt. You're gonna make me cry. <laughs> no, it destroyed our family for years. When was this? Uh, 1986. So it was a while ago now. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's still fresh. Of course. You, it's, you know, as soon as you start talking about it, oh, it's, it's right such there a sad again. Story. Yeah. <laughs> it's right there. You know, I remember, there are another couple moments. I remember the day before um, I was in college and I was in school in Boston. And I remember walking down, I, it, this was in front of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And I remember walking down, and the ginkgo trees were like shedding their leaves and it was the most perfect sunny fall day and in hindsight I looked and thought and I remember that moment just being really happy and I'm and thinking oh, you know what this is the perfect day and I remember feeling later like oh that was a gift because there were no perfect days after. Was that around the time that it happened? It was the day before. It was the day before. It was the day before. So sometimes I get nervous when there's a perfect day, when like, you, whoa. When you, notice, <laughs> yeah. when you notice this perfect yeah, day. Yeah, when I notice this perfect day. Because I think, oh, is there something behind this? Yeah, is there something behind you noticing yeah. this beautiful no. moment? No. And I remember it took, I felt for, for two years, I felt like I was falling backwards in blackness. Mm. It was, a, you know, just falling. And then... And, and then one day the load lightened. Just sort of on its own? Do you feel like Very time... gradually. There was just one day that about two years later, like physically, I felt a weight just, um, just slip away, and it wasn't as black. You slowly came out the other side. But it, um, you know, it's still there. We have a, um, and not many, not many family members know about this. We have this wonderful tradition in our family that my sister was a wonderful cook, a wonder, wonderful seamstress, wonderful. And we always joked, you know, her cheesecakes and cookies, you know, could go to the moon and back for how many she had made for friends or <laughs> whatever. And, uh, and she was an amazing, uh, amazing cook. So it was early November that um, she died from suicide. And my brother and I were uh, so deep in despair and we were trying to think for Thanksgiving, how are we going to endure it? How are we going to endure sitting at a table? And, um, and we joked and we said, well, in her honor, we'll have a bake-off and we'll bake pies. And we, 
Uh, so we start, because we're a competitive family, we, so now we have the Normantis Invitational Pie Bake Off. No way. And so every year this. we do that. Is you still do it? We still do it, and it is a big deal. It's very elaborate. We, you know, the person who wins one year gets to choose the category for the following year, and, and it all has to be like apple pies or pumpkin pies or whatever, and it is in her, and it's not something that's spoken about, but... Every year, it was I know it, your way of honoring her. It was our way of honoring her, and it's my favorite tradition of our family. And my kids are amazing pie bakers now because <laughs> everybody can make a great crust. Everybody, uh, so that is a family. Uh, that's how her. So it's um, I love that tradition, and yeah, that's um, beautiful. And it's never talked about really, right. but um, certainly but it's something we know that you do, and it's something do. that you know. Yeah. So that's. Um, and I think that it's a beautiful thing to get to do that when you know that the, the, the processing, that that's as much as you can do, right? That's as much as we can do. And we all, all wanted to save her. We all knew she was vulnerable. We all, everybody did everything that they could humanly have done to mm. make that choice different. But she was in so much emotional pain that I think, you know, we were really angry, like, oh, when we finally see her, we're going to kill her. <laughs> right, <laughs> because, right, right, right. You know, she, uh, it was so, um, I, I just come to, she must have been in such a depth of pain to give up her children, to give up us, who she loved dearly. She had children. She had three girls, beautiful, that were young. They were her sun and moon. There are certain things that just can't be fixed no. in this lifetime, right? No. We were all destroyed. Yeah. All of us. We're just shattered. Yeah. So so that was the, you know, that was a, a second thread. That was the second thread. So then, you know, uh, it. Um, I remember the feeling after that experience of, well, the worst thing that could have happened to me did, and I'm still standing. Sure. That's what I would have thought. Yeah. And part of you is like, wow, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm still standing. And um, so then it gives you that feeling of, if I can live through that, <laughs> I can probably live through nearly anything. Anything, sure. And even though you know everybody has their breaking point. And, I, you know, knowing what my sister's was. You know, everybody has, nobody's superhuman, nobody's whatever. We all have different breaking points. Right. And, um, and just knowing, knowing that. But what it did do is um, I feel like through that it galvanized me. And I, I evolved to that word because I feel like, wow, I really went through... Uh, you know, some some fire of where, you know, there was nothing but ash left, mm. and uh, uh, but yet, kind of in in the in the dust of this, then um, I was galvanized in a way, and something different was forged out of that, and so um, the story goes and the thread continues to. Um, you know, a wonderful marriage and amazing husband and four beautiful children of my own. The oldest, uh, or I have two children that both are on the autism spectrum, 
and, um, and uh, both have Asperger's. And thank goodness, um, a lot of support that we've been able to access through that process. Um, but there was a day when my oldest had had gone away for a weekend, and, and how old was he at this time? He was um, seven years old, okay. six or seven years. And I was rubbing his back as he was going to bed, as was the custom, kind of to help him relax and just rubbing his back, and what felt like out of the blue then he said he said mom he said I have to tell you something can I tell you something and I said sure sure bud and he said um, I need to uh, tell you that I need to leave this world and that's when I felt an out-of-body experience start unfolding of what am I hearing my child tell me? And so he's like, Mom, he said, I have to leave this world. He said, it's too hard. And he said, will you come with me? And, um, and I said, Bud, I said, um, uh, I said, what's wrong? And he said, it's just too hard. And he said, Mom, he said, do you know how I'm going to do it? And I said, no. I said, tell me what you're thinking. And he says, I know where the second window at school is, and there's rocks underneath. And if I go out the window and I fall and it doesn't work, I'll take an icicle. And he motioned to his chest. And having had the thread of depression and suicide in my family, then my radar for depression is pretty high. And um, so to find myself at that moment was, was really hard. You didn't, obviously you didn't see it coming. I did not see this coming. I did not see this. So the feeling of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. How did I get here? And how did he get here? So that was really tough. Yeah, I obviously have no words yeah, for this. Yeah, that was nothing. really, really tough, really tough. So then you switch in that surreal moment of <laughs> my child's telling me that he wants to kill himself and he wants me to come with him. Yeah. And it's like, but no, you know, let's make a plan. Mm -hmm. So let's make a plan of how you can stop feeling this much pain and how we can, um, so, you know, can you promise me that you won't do anything till we make our plan? Was he able to do that? Okay. I said, just for the next day, just for the next day, and we'll take it a day at a time. So then the other part of your mind is working on overdrive of like, holy, how, um, what do I do with a suicidal seven-year-old? Oh, you know, he's not exhibiting any other signs of depression. There's no change in behavior. There's no sleeping pattern. There's no appetite change. There's no affect change. You know, all your usual cues are not there. Right. And, um, and that 
started us putting together a plan mm -hmm. and, uh, and then working through it. And the good news is, there is good news. We got through the plan. Yeah. We got through another side. And he's still with you. He's still with us. He's in college now. Oh, yay. <laughs> yes. So, happy days. I feel like it's one of those moments where I'm like, I don't really have anything. I've got nothing. I've got absolutely nothing. I remember when we talked before, just feeling the same way. Like, I don't have words for this amount of pain yeah. for somebody. Yeah. Except you know, empathy. Yeah. Like, I don't know how you live through this and I don't yeah. know how anyone does. Yeah. And you know, you said on the phone something about, when we talked, something about clearly part of my life is this thread mm -hmm. of people around me, mm -hmm. you know, being this, who they are. Yeah. And you were finally through your son, you mm -hmm. know, you were able to give him help, mm -hmm. comfort him, connect with him, mm -hmm. but it's just, it's part of your path, really. You felt like it's it was part, just like, I don't really know why, but this is part of yeah, my path. I don't know why it is there. It's certainly not something that, uh, as I mentioned, I ever ch would choose. It's never, these are such primary relationships of my mother, my sister, my son, yeah. um, that it's not, that it's just so close to the core. Right. So close to the core. One of the things that I always say is, it sounds like your husband was really important role. Where, you know, when you were going through this, when you look back, do you think, oh, I wish I would have had this particular help in these situations, or do you feel like, like what do you what do you feel like worked and didn't work? I think knowing out of the outset that this solving this and helping him get through to a a healthy place will take a team. It really takes a team. You have your part, but you have to bring in, and I, you have to marshal the army, and you have to be the, um, the tiger advocate. You have to be the tiger advocate for your child. And it's easy to turn that on because you know what you could lose. Yeah, so as the parent, you're the one that's going in. You and are. now, mm -hmm. you know, different from probably when your sister Mm -hmm. was in the place that she was and also as a parent mm -hmm. it was different your role was different yes, for your son very than it was so. for your sister yeah but also time had gone by mm -hmm. and so now there are more resources yes much but, more understanding but even with those resources mm -hmm. you're saying you still have to go in you have to go in with your a game your a game and find the best fit for your child be that person at school um, first of all you know just protecting from a safety standpoint till you get through that crisis part of like all right what's manageable you know at that point I I don't think he was on medication you know what great let's put that on the table now let's bring in whatever we need I you know any tool that's out there let's see which ones are the right fit for him and um, did you finally figure that out? Like, was it a good fit, or did you have to go through several? I mean, I know I've talked to other. Sure, no, to. you. Um, it's navigating the right uh, professional resources. It's navigating the right chemical resources. Mm -hmm. uh, figuring out which one of those make the most sense at what interval, and um, it's a lot of figuring it out as your child is growing and changing in front of you. So, what worked two months ago, you know what? That game's over you know, next inning. So 
you really have to, you just have to ante up and, and um, be full on. When you look back, I always say to people, what did you learn? What have you learned from all of this? I mean, I think you mentioned a little bit earlier about that, but what's your, what do you feel like your, your lesson is in all this? What would you share? <laughs> you know, I don't, you know, I don't really have a, a big summary um, lesson in that everybody's lesson's different. So to share it with somebody doesn't necessarily, their lesson will be different. You know, for whatever weird reason, this is my deal. This is my deal. And, um, but I feel like I came through through with the support, the grace of God, the support of family, and um, and I feel like I was galvanized to be a different person, to have a different sense of empathy, and understand that, you know what, there is light, there is a lot of pain that is there, um, but that also doesn't minimize the beauty of a perfect day. That's such a beautiful ending, the idea of there are the perfect days out there. There are the perfect days. I don't know that there's much more even to say than no, like no. you you go through these things. Um, I went through the losing my godmother to mm. cancer. Um, mm. She was my mother figure, and it was a long yeah. chunk of time. Like you were saying, after your yeah. your sister died, and yet that's what ended up happening. Is yeah. I would have these moments of like intense, mm-hmm. intense joy yeah. and beauty. Yeah. So I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. There are these moments that I'm like, this is the that perfect, perfect day. The yeah. perfect moment, yeah, and feeling very grateful, very grateful that you can enjoy it. I know what I have. Yeah. I know what I have. Yeah. I know what it's like to lose it. I know what it's like to have it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Jen, for being brave enough to share a very uh, intense, yeah, and sad story. And yet, like you said, for your son, this is a a victory. It is a victory. It yeah. is a victory. I think what a gift he is. I think um, how lucky, and I wish I had been as lucky with my sister. Yeah, yeah. But that's not the story. That is not. Well, I appreciate you sharing the story that you you. did. I think that it also reminds people that one of the things I always think is you never know that person checking out in line next to you at Hanford. You don't know what their story is. No, no. There's a lot. And sadly, I think there are many that will have some connection to this story. I think it, because it is such a raw uh, emotion, and when it touches you, that it is, um, it's very deep, and it's not usually on the surface. And I do think, too, you know, as we talked about it on the, uh, before, it's not something that we want to talk about. No. Because it's not just losing someone. It's at a whole other level, and so I think the intensity of, and then the shame, mm-hmm. generationally. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. less now, but it's yes. still there. It's still, yeah, right. it's still there. I remember my mother died two years later. My mother died in 1988, and I loved my, you know, a very close relationship with my mother. And when she died, it was such an, e- <laughs> and it feels really weird to say this, but such an easier grief, such an easier grief. Oh, yes such an easier grief so it absolutely. was um, absolutely it just takes you to different places yeah i was going to say it's a two totally different things yeah. losing someone to a more either whether it's cancer or yeah. old age or whatever yeah. you may have on this side mm-hmm. of 
of the coin yeah. versus letting go of somebody who took their life, who yeah. made that choice. And mm-hmm. I do think that part of why I'm so grateful you're sharing this is because I feel it's so important to open up this dialogue yeah. because there is so much shame around it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I remember. I, you know, I still, there's still so much, uh, so much reluctance to try to understand what gets somebody there, what gets somebody there. And so much, there's so much guilt over the people who survive. What could I have done? What could I, and knowing in most cases, there's very, very little that person had made up their mind. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, it's so important for us to talk about that. Remind each other of it. Yeah, yeah. So thank you. You're welcome, thank you. If you or someone you know is contemplating suicide or talking about suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. They can guide you to the professionals who are there to help you. Please don't hesitate to get the help you need. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you know somebody who's interested in telling the story that changed their lives, have them reach out to me. You can find information about the Gardenia Project over at jendinephotography.com as well as the blog posts with the portraits of Stefa and all the other stories that I have recorded so far. A thank you to Keith Kenneth for the fabulous theme music, and I'll be back soon.